Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode four of the Empathy Machine podcast. I am your host, Andrew Ford. Joining me, as always, is your other host, Josh Ickes. I'm the other host. And uh, I did want to say co-host. I figured other host would be more accurate. Yeah, it's it's kind of a, a strange because uh, it's not I don't feel like it's entirely your show and that I'm just like you're I'm not your Ed McMahon is what I'm saying. But I didn't want to say I, I'm your co-host. I see now I say it, it sounds fine anyway. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, you know, if only we were brothers. Oh, wait, somebody, somebody already took that shtick. Oh, no. <laughs> well, what movie are we here to talk about tonight? We're here to talk about Alien Resurrection. We are completing our first pass through the Alien franchise. We're going to take a little break after this by talking about Alien Resurrection from 1997, directed by Jean-Pierre Junet. Or Junet? Junet. Junet, I think. He's got a certain Junet c'est quoi, if uh, I may say so myself. That's a terrible joke. Oh, wow. Um, I don't know if my mic is hot enough for you to hear my eyes rolling. but uh, Yeah, well, I, I know. I can feel it. I can yeah. feel it. Like, yeah. yeah. You can sense it. All the way on the West Coast, I feel it. It's, it was directed by Jean-Pierre Genet and written by Joss Whedon. Oh, who is who did that now? Did he, did he, what did he do? He, board, he wrote for uh, Roseanne, I think. Uh, amongst other things. <laughs> no, everybody, yeah, so Joss Whedon obviously did Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Firefly, The Avengers, and now he's doing, he's going to do Batgirl, he's done, I'm leaving things out, he did, Do- I like Dollhouse, oh, yeah. Dollhouse oh. is great. Yeah, it is. The synopsis is as follows, 200 years have passed since Ellen Ripley died on Fiorina 161, aboard the medical research vessel USM Auriga, a team of scientists clone Ripley from her extracted DNA and remove the alien queen embryo, which was growing inside of her at the time of her death. That's the end of the synopsis, but I added chaos ensues. So, Josh, what happens in this movie? Well, it's it's two hundred years have passed since. El- oh, wait. <laughs> you, you it. A whole, there's a whole lot of incident in the movie. Mm-hmm. A whole lot of like one thing happens, and then some other stuff happens. Essentially, Ripley has been cloned, as have the xenomorphs, for I don't know how many iterations. This is Ripley eight. I don't know how many of the xenomorphs they've had to go through. But this military industrial complex place is trying to grow super soldiers, basically. They, once again, have the hubris to think that they can contain the xenomorph. They're, they're wrong. Yeah. So what's it, that's interesting because the, the xenomorph does look, I mean, it looks different in this film because everything looks different in this film. But also, you mentioned they've been like working on it through, they've probably been doing multiple versions of it because they, they're coming out of multiple versions of Ripley. I think it's interesting to consider the fact that the xenomorph itself, like, is deliberately very different. Like, it's it's not just that it's shinier and uh, and goopier than in previous films. I feel like for each movie, they up the 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 grossness factor. <laughs> they up their goop budget by about twenty five percent on each film in this franchise because the first film is it, the aliens drippy and the humans are very very sweaty. They're mm-hmm. like cool hand Luke sweaty in that movie. Mm-hmm. Aliens. I mean, there's a lot more like viscera kind of flying around. Mm-hmm. Part three, that whole planet is slimy. Yeah, it it feels it's like someone got a little bit of gack on everything. Mm-hmm. And then this one, oh oh, this is the drippiest alien. <laughs> oh, it's so goopy. And there's whole whole vats full of I don't know formaldehyde, space formaldehyde, probably. 
there's there's all the just the room with all the clones and the floating in the tubs of or floating in the in the water or whatever like the amniotic whatever that's kind of just gross like the, the just the way the different clones look spoilers they, they kind of keep around some of the older ripley clones that didn't work out so well it's very imaginative and how it and how they decide to realize that like they're very you know limbs are in different places they're all kind of you know it's it's a very there's a lot of grotesquerie going on which i guess is to be expected at the time because this is coming off of City lost children which i remember having a sort of similar like kind of grimy the movie not grimy isn't the right word more like a uh, very tangible icky uh aesthetic and then um I've, i i have to admit i haven't seen delicatessen but i imagine as much the same wait 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 you have not seen delicatessen well okay so I almost included it in my list of like, this is one of the biggest oversights. When I say you a list of like crazy, like movies, it's crazy. I haven't seen. I was like, should I throw that delicatessen in there? And I was like, no, because I don't, I don't know if it's like really up there, but uh, yeah, that's the, that's a big one, huh? Yeah, it, it really is. Especially um, I would say given your uh, tastes, mm-hmm. I would, I would put it up there. Your, okay your admiration of things that are completely wackadoodle <laughs> and I don't know you, you the part of you that likes Richard Kelly so much. Ooh. Okay. You know, in a, in a good way. Yes. Is there yes. another way to like Richard Kelly? I, Ooh. Uh, I think there's like maybe ironic <laughs> appreciation of Richard. Kelly. That's true. I, yeah. yeah. Uh, I do not support. And I also don't, appreciate when people only appreciate Donnie Darko as uh, a nostalgia piece. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause I think they're missing a whole lot, but I'm that's a conversation for another time that I know we will have on this podcast. We will have eventually. Yeah. Um, yeah okay. All right. Gonna happen. I'm going to write down, I'm going to write down C delicatessen and I'm going to write down underneath that. I am an idiot. Okay. Good. And uh, we'll go with that. Okay. That's all <laughs> so far. Yeah. So uh, let's get back into resurrection here. You talked about it being grotesque, and mm-hmm. I do think more than the other movies, we talked a little bit about it offline beforehand, that this movie, it sets apart from the rest of the franchise like in a variety of ways. Mm-hmm. And whereas I feel like the other ones are really kind of grim with their gore, mm-hmm. this movie is kind of having fun with it, I think. Oh, definitely. In a way that we haven't seen, really. There, there's a moment with uh, Dan Hedaya's character. He plays General Perez when he gets killed by the uh, one of the Xenomorphs. Uh, you don't see it actually happen. You just see his, like you're facing him from the front in close up, and you see his like face just go like, like he's just like, oh god, what happened? And you hear the sound effect of like the alien, like the tiny mouth, you know, punching into his skull from the back, and then you see him just kind of reach behind his head and grab like a little piece of like stuff. And then pull it out, like part of his brain, and then pull it out and like look at it, and then he like falls down, and it's like very heightened and sort of cartoonish. Yes, it's very grimy and goopy. Like it's not a great movie to like eat pasta while you're watching it, but it's very no, it's, it's it's not like harsh, like you were saying. Yeah, I don't know. It's closer to like a Sam Raimi or Peter Jackson kind of mm-hmm. vibe, early Peter Jackson kind of vibe. It, it is. It's cartoonish. It's it's wacky. Appreciates the grotesque in a way that the other films didn't really mm-hmm. got here in the notes that it's more fantastical and more of a fantasy seemingly than the other film. I think it has a heightened, uh, 
a tone that's like I, I believe the first three films kind of aim for a level of realism. Right. And this doesn't even seem to be. It doesn't really seem to be going for that. It's not. De- it's not deliberately unrealistic, but it's closer to. Another comparison that comes to mind is uh, Terry Gilliam. Yes. Yeah. That's a little bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Very like very broad and like caricatured, but also not not completely divorced from reality, but not tethered to it inextricably either. So it's very very interesting tone. I guess I can see why people maybe had problem with it initially because on the heels of even as a course correction from how dark and grim Alien Three got, it's still kind of a a, a leap to get to the tone of this film, right. which is also interesting based on the script because I feel like the script is maybe even more clearly a dark comedy or darkly comic and it's in, in, on the page and it's not as, it's not exactly executed to the to maximize that part of the tone if that makes sense yes I, first of all I believe it's Terry Gilliam no way <laughs> no way uh, that's that's part of my ongoing um, gif gif debate <laughs> okay. Which would be um what what side of that do you come down on? I just don't use the word. It's not a word. It's a file extension. I don't say it. You know what? That's that is probably <laughs> the best. I saw this funny moving picture that looped every few seconds on the internet the other day. There's this great flash animation going around going around. It's fantastic. I just I do try not to say it. I do yeah. I when I yeah, I kinda yeah, I don't know what the answer is. <laughs> yeah, I, I always go with, with uh GIF because it's graphics interchange format it's mm-hmm. i don't care what the guy who made it says it's it stands for graphics not traffics it's like know. when people say rbis it's like you're saying runs bad it ends right you just, the plural of rbi is rbi anyway yeah <laughs> cul-de-sacs versus calls de sac Ooh, that's a tough one yeah it is where this is turning welcome to the grammar podcast yes we're talking about the english language <laughs> okay that last one was french but still the well okay yeah but it's it's it's, it's a borrow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I do think that Terry Gilliam is a, is a really good touchstone actually. And I hadn't thought of that up till now. And that gets into something that, that I want to touch on as far as the, the style of resurrection here. It really seems like the previous movies, the style worked in service of uh, the storytelling and the, the like building character and building world. Mm-hmm. Whereas this movie, it, it's a lot more kinetic it's these kind of wacky wide angle lenses from, for the most part mm-hmm. you do, you get right up in everyone's face and everyone looks that, you know, that's where that grotesqueness comes in mm-hmm. even with conventionally attractive people. Like it just exaggerates everyone's face to the extreme. And that is very like Terry Gilliam, but I feel like Terry Gilliam on his, in his better work uses that to, I don't know, create, a world that I have a lot of empathy with. Mm -hmm. Whereas this one, it doesn't land like that. It feels more like you said, cartoonish um, comic booky was Mm -hmm. what I kept kind of writing down. It it feels really over the top and it seems almost like the movie itself is like this weird hybrid, right? Cause you have Joss Whedon's taste. He was established a little bit at this point, but he's not the Joss Whedon that we know today. Right. But you have him kind of in this embryonic stage coming out and then you have Jean-Pierre Genet, who, if you've seen Amelie or Delicatessen or well, Very Long Engagement, any of these films, he's a super hyper-stylized filmmaker as well. Mm-hmm. And 
And you have these two things kind of smashing together in much the same way that Ripley and the aliens DNA smashes together. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness. <laughs> but, uh, but I don't, despite how much I like the movie, I think it's the least successful of the original four. Probably if I had to sit down and watch them again, aliens is still going to be the last one I pick because okay. it is camera describes it. It's 40 miles of bad road. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a slog and it's, it's grim. <laughs> it's, it's <laughs> for me. It's just, it's a lot to get through. This is more, it's more upbeat. I, I kind of feel like during a lot of the scenes, like shredding guitars should come in. Okay. You know what I mean? Like it's just, it's more fun. Yeah, no, I could see that. I think um, not to keep talking about Terry Gilliam, but I really wish I thought of that before it just came before it just came to my mind, like earlier. Because yeah, I'm surprised either one of us thought of that. Actually, it's such a clear influence on Junet. Yeah. Uh, it's like, yeah, it's kind of blowing my mind right now. It is very interesting that because I feel like this is during a little period of time too when Terry Gilliam had just made Twelve Monkeys, and his style was actually seen as somewhat like something that people would want to people liked, right? You know that would that was marketable, where you know for a very brief window of time. So I just think that's very fascinating to the to the point. Like Joss Whedon had written Toy Story before this. Right. This was like in between that. Like he did that, and then he worked on Buffy, and I believe Buffy and Alien Resurrection kind of concurrent. And then he did the next script he wrote after that was Titan AE, and I believe he did punch ups on stuff here and there. But it's kind of interesting to see how his career evolved. And how you could get someone like him on a big studio project like this, and the result is kind of not in his hands. And, and none of that would be for any screenwriter, but I kind of see an interesting parallel between him and James Gunn in that regard. Yeah, where James Gunn started out very similarly uh, working on the Scooby Doo movies. Well, he started out with Trauma, and then he worked his way up to the Scooby Doo movies, which are no one's. I mean, they're pretty fun. But they have like a, <laughs> they have like a certain. Uh, well, he's in service of a director, not on the level of say Jean Pierre Jeunet, or uh, <laughs> he's not uh, turning in his works to someone who is a has a very clear visual. Well, I guess Raja Gaznell has a clear visual style. It's just it's just garish and and uh, skews kind of young. But anyway, I just think it's very interesting to explore the, the how this was created because the script. I believe was the thing that got people excited about it in the first place because I don't think Sigourney Weaver wanted to come back. I don't right. think Fox was terribly interested. They only wanted to make another one because they didn't want Alien Three to be the way that to be the end because a lot of people at that time they only had the theatrical cut to complain about and they were complaining about it. Right. So I, I feel like it's it's interesting to see. I feel like because it started with the script and then they went out and got Junet and then to have him like they this is during like the spec sale market boom in Hollywood too. Not that this was written on spec, I don't think. I think he was hired to write it, but for a brief period of time, a script would be like a bit enough to get a movie made if it was good enough. I feel like. Right. like Shane Black, Joe Esterhouse. And it says towards the end of that, you see like a shift in big big studio like blockbuster filmmaking. And you see it when you watch all these alien movies too, in a different sense than like a broader sense. But in terms of like the screenwriting, I think this is maybe like the last gasp of like, you can, you know, you have, I think he had a certain amount of say things didn't get changed but i think at once they're on set the way it gets managed by the way the actors deliver the lines the actors that get cast in the roles mm-hmm. doesn't all mesh together perfectly well like you were saying i feel you, the direction was in service of the of the story and it's interesting like 
We talked about Alien 3. We talked about it as everything as a decision made by David Fincher, but he doesn't have a screenplay credit on it. Right. And so that's kind of, a, it's a, so it's, there is a lot, you know, it's like, if you're able to blur that line, that's really, that's a mark of a good filmmaker. But when you get in here, not that Junaid's not, not a good filmmaker, but it's a very interesting mix. It's his first big Hollywood studio film, and I believe his last, depending on where he got funding for some of his later stuff. So it's very, it's just a, it's a puzzle. I, like, I really enjoy this movie. I want it, I, I think, I think you enjoy it more than me, and I'm jealous of that. <laughs> like, I really like, I like parts of it a lot. But yeah, I wonder if you could, you could talk some more about just what it is, the comic bookiness of it, because I feel like you have a better handle on that than I do for sure. In my brain, I kind of divorce it from the rest of the, the series, which helps me enjoy it. Yeah. Because I think that if you hold it up to the other films or expect it to like play in the same world, it doesn't work. But if you look at it as a, like a one shot or a, uh, or a what if issue, it, it plays a little better for me. And it's kind of like, what if Jean-Pierre Genet directed an alien? You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. it's kind of what the alien series always has been, but it, tended towards is much more realistic, darker, more philosophical kind of grim worlds. And this is, I don't know. It's almost a a Marvel versus a DC kind of thing going on. And I mean, to explain my comic book metaphor with another comic book metaphor, I guess, (laughs) I don't know. It's to me, it's, it's fun and it's poppy. Mm -hmm. And I think that if it was called something else, and the aliens were different that it would have been received a lot better. The fact that the Godfather three would be a perfectly serviceable generic crime film from the era. If they didn't tie it to those characters, like I don't think it would be as hated as it is. It would just be more of a shrug. It would be a totally middling movie, but because it's in that series, it's, it's a failure. And I kind of feel like this is the same thing. Like, these last two movies are weighed against the first two in a way that I don't think is entirely fair. You know, I like to always take adaptations as their own property. And the same with this, like they go so far out of their way to make sure that, you know, this is not the same continuum except for the xenomorphs. Mm -hmm. And that was actually a question that I had for you. The fact that it's, would you say 200 yeah, 200 years. Yeah, in the 200 years. This is either a clone of a clone of Ripley or the eighth iteration of them cloning Ripley. Is this the same character? Should should there even be continuity between this Ripley person thing that exists in this film and the one that we know from the first three? I I don't know the answer to the should part, but I do know the answer to... Because I, I feel like you could go either way as long as you make the decision and execute it well. I think... There's a there's a version of this movie where it's more clear that Winona Ryder's call is like a surrogate daughter character. Uh-huh. There's a way to do it that's not repetitive of Aliens with Newt, and there's a way to do it that uh, makes it really compelling because Ripley's a clone and Call is spoilers uh, synthetic, uh, an advanced model of of android. That so that's one way they could have done it. The other the way that I feel like they ultimately did it is she is not. Ripley, hardly Ripley at all. Like, there's nothing. I believe that like there's some memories there. The movie's trying to imply there's some inextricable part of yourself that can't be like this irreducible part of right. yourself that is still there no matter what. But there's also like, I mean, she behaves in ways that are very. I guess they're. She's she's Ripley in a very 
unique situation, I guess. I feel like the movie wants to have it both ways, and it's hard to figure out which way. We, there's a way to do it where she's completely unrelated and Sigourney Reaver's playing a completely different character that's interesting. And then I feel like this has... What's the difference? I say all this like the movie's confused. The movie doesn't know which one what version it wants to do. Sigourney Weaver, once again, this is a, this is a performance section of the, of the podcast. She's incredible. Uh, she's... Yeah. You really don't know... Yeah, I mean, she really don't know what side she's on half the time. Let's do a little bit of compliment sandwich here. Okay. Uh, Performance-wise, let's start with Sigourney Weaver. Fantastic. Okay. It seems as if the direction is... You know, not the most consistent, but her portrayal and especially like the early introductory scenes, mm-hmm. I think is just awesome. Her, she outwits people very quickly. I also like kind of the body work that she does in the very beginning mm-hmm. as she is basically being rebirthed. Yeah. I think that stuff is like so much of this movie. It's a little bit goofy and over the top, but she she sells it. I really like it. Mm-hmm. So for the middle part of the compliment sandwich, <laughs> let's talk about all the people who are miscast. Well, I think let, let's be clear about, cause there's a, there's a mix between there's miscast and there's not especially well directed at how to, I, I'm not saying like, obviously I understand like you're not going to walk up to an actor and say, you have to deliver this line this way because it's the only way it works on the page. So I guess miscast right. is the best way to go with it. But well, I guess we could start with Dominique Pignon, Pignon, Yes, which uh, I really like him in these other Jean-Pierre Jeunet movies mm-hmm. that he's in, which is all of them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, Delicatessen, Lost Children, Amelie, mm-hmm. Very Long Engagement, even Micmax. See, yeah, after Very Long Engagement, uh, I, I haven't seen any of his stuff. I'm very curious. I, I would assume Dominique is like his guy. He's right up there. Uh, looks like him and... One other guy have appeared in all of the films. Mm-hmm. Hervé Schneid. I'm going to hunt in the cast list for Hervé, but... Yeah, I don't know what his role <laughs> is. But yeah, Dominique Pignon, does, it seems as if he is doing his lines... What's the word I'm looking for? Phonetically. There you go, phonetically. You learn them phonetically. Yes. Yeah. They don't roll off the tongue, and it literally seems as if he's in uh, a different scene than the rest of the cast most of the time. Mm-hmm. But I understand that it's a multilingual film set here. It had mm-hmm. to be tough working conditions. I mean, Ron Perlman had worked with them on the city of lost children mm-hmm. just a couple of years before. Also, I think there's probably societally and just kind of like the reference points and everything are a little bit skewed from mm-hmm. culture to culture. And part of it might not even be like poor direction so much as, there's just a lot to, you know what? Lost in translation. There's a lot that could be lost in translation. Especially in terms of comedy and, and Joss Whedon's style of di- like dialogue heavy, like quippy lines. Just as an example that I know off the top of my head, I'm sure there's others, but there's the line in um, the first X-Men movie that Joss Whedon did script work on that he claims as his own, which I wouldn't, based on the delivery, but he says he wrote it. And it's the one where Halle Berry walks out and uh, as Storm, and she's got Toad, the bad guy, is like uh, he's holding onto a railing with by his tongue, and like there's wind blowing and stuff. Yeah. And she says, "Do you know what happens to a toad when it gets struck by lightning?" And he like looks at her, and she goes, "The same thing that happens to everything else." And it's just delivered so flat. And part of it is because 
she also doesn't have any eye, like any pupils for that because her eyes are all white. So it's kind of hard to see like her expression, right. which is something that I don't think was really thought through other than she's Storm and her eyes do that when she does use their powers. But that line is delivered so flatly. And so I would say with Dominique Pignon, yes, it's probably the language barrier. But when Ron Perlman has lines that aren't delivered exactly to the best use of the, to the way they're supposed to be delivered, it's not because he's miscast or because there's a language barrier. That's because he just isn't, there's, there's no there's no emphasis placed on communicating that line in the right way by the director. I would think I would say because I love Ron Perlman. Yeah, and this is I don't know it's this like fascinating mishmash like you said before you know the hybrid of of Janae and Joss Whedon coming together, but also Ron Perlman who I love. I mean mm-hmm. I think he is. I watched all of Sons of Anarchy and he was a big reason why he was the reason why i started watching it in the first place okay just because i like that guy i would watch him do <laughs> just about anything he oozes personality mm-hmm. and he is also basically playing the adam baldwin role from firefly and serenity oh definitely which we can we'll get into a little bit later <laughs> which is also kind of this han solo character it's the the crew of the the ship that i guess we should have said that at the beginning Onto this military installation comes these uh, space pirates who are delivering this secret cargo, which turns out to be uh, a bunch of people that are going to be incubators for the super soldier aliens. There you go. There's the plot. Part of the problem is everybody on the, on the Betty, the space pirate ship, they're, they're all Han Solo's. It's mm-hmm. everyone is arch and cocky and, too cool for school, mm-hmm. which I feel like that's probably part of it. They got lost in translation because Joss Whedon kind of has this. He uses a lot of those same archetypes, but he twists and turns them enough that you see the some underlining humanity. He has this uh, unerring sincerity about him. Like it, it really even when his characters are being quippy, it's never in this kind of arch cynical way. Mm-hmm. They always seem to be real and vulnerable. And I think mm-hmm. a lot of that is what got lost in this movie because you have Ron Perlman who makes a living making big tough guys seem vulnerable mm-hmm. <laughs> and have more dimensions. And he doesn't do it in this movie. You know, I, I have to think that it's because just communication breakdowns or, you know, like you said, Joss Whedon just not having as much pull at that point in time to kind of, you know, help the director along. I also think uh, Winona Ryder is kind of in a different movie entirely. Yeah. She, she's in the same place she was during the, like, what was it? The SAG awards where she was on stage for stranger <laughs> things. Yes. And yes. just like looking around and just like not knowing what's how to react to what was happening. Yeah. That's kind of, yeah. Uh, no, she, She's definitely, I, yeah, I'll charitably say she seems like she's in her own movie. It's just, I don't think she knows what, I just, it just felt like she wasn't, I don't know, because she's, she's as good in things. Mm-hmm. She's very good in things. I mean, even as, like, as far back as I think Beetlejuice is one of her earliest roles. She's amazing right. in Beetlejuice. Like, she's got kind of talent. You know, she is good in Stranger Things. Some people, I've had arguments about it, but I think she's mostly good in Stranger Things. Some people think she's shrill. I think she's good. But this is, I would take that, the worst parts of that performance, because they would animate what is essentially 
I mean, maybe she was playing up the robotic part of the character. I, I don't know, but it's very flat on screen. I don't want to like, like drag somebody. Like that sounds mean. I feel mean now. I don't mean to be mean. Like she does it. She, you know, she had a tough job. They had to swim underwater for like two weeks for that one sequence. I mean, that's hard. Yeah, that it, you know, it's, she worked her ass off. I should shut my mouth, right? <laughs> but I think it's from coming from a, a genuine place of you know Joss Whedon like sincerity. <laughs> what did you think about the rest of the the space pirates, the rest of the crew of the Betty being uh, was it uh, Gary Dordan who is best known I guess from CSI probably mm-hmm. and Michael Wincott? What did you think about those guys? Uh, Gary Dordan, I'd have to let me see, look at a picture to remember who he is. Is he? He's the yeah. He's the the marksman. Yeah, he played Christy. He can yeah. figure out all the angles and gotcha. stuff. Okay. Yeah, yeah. No, um, yeah. I thought I thought he was. Fun. I mean, I feel like some of the casting comes into it when you're talking about everyone seems like a Han Solo. Like I feel like he's he's a character that has a skill that if a different actor was playing it, or if he was directed in a different way, or if he if he was just you know if he was more like clean cut and like like laid back and like stoic, but he's kind of, he's got like the, the dreads out and he's like, like, uh, like kind of cock, like kind of walking around, like he should be, but you know, of course he's the guy who can shoot anything, you know, there's no, there's no contrast, I guess. They kind of have the one note and then hit it. I think, I mean, I think he does fine. I think, um, he's, he's a little crazy eyed. He's a little crazy eyed. Yeah. He's, but he's, he's buddies with, uh, the Dominique, uh, Pinon. who is i feel like is it implied that they have like a romantic thing or was that ever Uh, that might just be you i don't know i feel like it might have been implied i don't know i mean there's a certain brotherhood born (laughs) of uh you know tough times and whatnot (laughs) i will say by the standout for me from the betty crew is uh michael wincott uh, he plays elgin and i love it when he shows up in anything because he has a great voice yes he doesn't show up in much anymore it seems like but this is a, like, uh, I guess, so when I was looking at this, there's another movie that is a big one I haven't seen called uh, called The Crow, <laughs> which I've never seen. And he's the villain in that, apparently. But, oh uh, my gosh, you're, you're hurting my uh, <laughs> self so bad right now. This is like, okay, so like when I started, I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to like date myself to, I mean, or date, I don't know. Like I started, my coming of age, like with movies was like into the millennium, like, so there's a lot of early '90s stuff that I just didn't catch up on. Oh, this is like you, you this is still, where the gap is. You were still living on the 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 Amish commune at that point in time. What I was doing was I was watching Disney movies. That's very like a, like a good consumer. That's what I was doing. So, but, wait, uh, yeah. have you ever seen a, a little film called Robin Hood: Prince of Thieves? I have. Is he in it? Yes. Okay. I haven't seen it in a long time. That was one my parents had. They recorded it off of HBO. Right, what, about, what about Dead Man? I saw Dead Man, but not till college. But uh, yeah, he's in that. Yes. Okay. No, and he's great in uh, Along Came the Spider. I was really big into Alex Cross when that movie came out. This is a crazy tangent, but he played Gary Sonji, and I was so excited because I had such a crazy character in those books. But now I'm an adult, and I realize those are really, really weird books for a kid to be into. And <laughs> hey, when I was super into uh, Silence of the Lambs mm-hmm. when it came out, and what year was that? 91. 91. So I was all of 12? Yeah. Yeah. That's... I mean, we've got, you know, we've been through a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but no, Michael Wincott is fantastic. He, he's got this amazingly deep voice. Mm-hmm. And it's deep, but also very clear. 
mm-hmm. and it just kind of has a special quality. I believe I really first noticed him in The Crow movie that I went multiple times and saw in the theater. Okay, uh, okay, I'll watch it. <laughs> <laughs> a movie, I have the soundtrack on vinyl, no big deal or anything. Okay. He is kind of the the calm and collected of, of the, the Betty's crew. Mm-hmm. And he seems the most dangerous because of that. Mm-hmm. You know, there's uh, the other guys. I mean, Ron Perlman is, is loud and kind of in your face. Christy is literally carrying guns strapped to his arms. Mm-hmm. Can't drop him when he's ordered to, <laughs> which is a kind of a silly little moment. Yeah. I really like Michael Wincott. I mean, Dan Hedaya gives a Dan mm-hmm. Hedaya performance. He's exactly what you would want Dan Hedaya to be, I guess. It's, it's definitely weird because I was used to him from like kids films where he's like Dan Hedaya. <laughs> Thinking Papa Vendez, I'm like, he's not a general. He's not a, he's just an angry principal. He's <laughs> <laughs> I'm most used to him from Blood Simple. Right. And now, yeah, he's so good in Blood Simple. Everyone's good in Blood Simple. Yes. Then you have Raymond Cruz as one of the the soldiers, I guess, on the ship, mm-hmm. who was in a little show called what was that called now? Oh yeah, Breaking Bad. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. Okay, so it's crazy that's probably like his most famous role now because I remember him from Training Day. He's the guy sitting at the table. Is like when I think I think Denzel Washington like leaves leaves him, uh, Ethan yes. Hawke alone with these guys. He's like, you ever get your shit? Pushed in, man! And it's like, oh my god. I just remember that guy being like, oh man, that's intense. Yeah, he, he had like a... He built a little, nice little career as like that that guy. The guy the, well, he's sort of different here, which is cool. Yeah. Uh, it's funny because um, that was actually going to be my pitch for this is this is a cast full of that guy. Okay. I mean, Ron Perlman is... He's one of the quintessential of that guys, I think. Mm-hmm. Right? Like... Most people, I don't think, out walking on the streets know who he is until you start saying some of the roles. Yeah. Dan Hedaya, same mm-hmm. way. And then you got Raymond Cruz. No one would know his name, even though it, he is fantastic as uh, Tuco in Breaking Bad and uh, Better Call Saul. Mm-hmm. And then you have, for me, my two, my two favorites here. Okay. Leland Orser and Brad Dourif. Yes. Real quick, because when we get to Brad Dorf, I think we're gonna we're gonna talk about that video essay. I don't want to do that yet. Okay. But to talk about Leland Orser, first of all, he's great in pretty much everything I've ever seen him in, and yes. I think it's interesting to look at his casting in this specifically as after Alien Three, David Fincher made commercials for a while, and then he made Seven, which was very successful critically and commercially, mm-hmm. and I think after that. There were, I mean, there were a lot of copycat seven movies that are, you know, sort of gritty crime thrillers with big stars in them. And I feel like there's a little bit of bleed, like bleed over into this film with like some of the post seven, let's get people who were involved with that because there's Leland Orser and Darius, Darius Konji who shot seven, the cinematographer of this film. I don't know how much of that is just me seeing patterns. It, the human mind looks for patterns where there are no patterns. So if people think 9-11 was an inside job, but Wow, <laughs> but it wasn't. I'm, I'm not saying it definitely wasn't. You can't, can't, I just want to be clear. <laughs> There's no pattern. There's a pattern there, but it's, it doesn't mean anything. <laughs> I love it. But yeah, I love like the idea of uh, 
I, I think that's interesting that he kind of came back in the Alien series that sort of David Fincher likely felt like he had been done wrong by is now him trying to glom off of some of his success. Also, he could he was probably just cast because he's a fucking great actor and he, he's perfect for this part and he does a great job with it. Also, I have to mention that both Leland Orser and Raymond Cruz were in uh, episodes of The X-Files. That's interesting. Yeah. I think I knew that. Well, real quick, before we get off of Leland Orser, I want to recommend the movie Faults. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. Okay. It's his a rare leading role for Leland Orser and uh, he's he does not disappoint. No, and that is one of my favorite films of the last few years, actually. Mm-hmm. It's one of those that I've, I've recommended to quite a few people because I think it's a you know an indie that a lot of people could appreciate. To me, it's more accessible than like other um, cult films like Martha, Marcy, May Marlene. Oh, yeah. But it still kind of plays in the same realm. I think everyone in Faults is fantastic. I just, yeah, I like that. Okay. Good, good movie. <laughs> Brad Dourif is... Always another person who's always great when he shows up in things. Another that guy, as you said. Okay, first of all, let's look. Okay, let's talk about his performances. So first of all, we start with Brad Dorf as like he's basically a mad scientist, right? Yes. And he's like, but then he's like aroused by the idea of by the by the by the the might, the horrific might of the alien, the xenomorph, and like how how powerful it is. And so set this up real quick. Okay. For anybody that didn't watch the movie. And maybe doesn't know who Brad Dourif is. Who's Brad Dourif? What what is he known for? Okay, Brad Dourif is known for voicing Chucky in the Child's Play movies. Mm-hmm. He is known as Grimma Wormtongue in the Lord of the Rings films. He is known as uh, Doc Cockrum, I believe, in Deadwood. Yes, I'm trying, I think those are some of his most well known roles. He he did a really good uh, job as Sheriff Brackett in the Rob Zombie Halloween remakes. Yep, he's just whenever he shows up in something, I'm like this movie. Had whoever's involved with this movie had the good sense to cast Brad Dourif, so it's probably going to be worth watching. He is also fantastic as Luther Lee Boggs in an episode of the X Files called Beyond the Sea. That's right, which is the first like masterpiece of the show. I yes. think, yeah, and has for me a one of the defining character moments for Scully mm-hmm. is in that episode. And it's beautiful and yeah. And it's all because it's two people in a room. Mm-hmm. It's him and Scully in a room talking. It's one of those scenes where I can't remember if it was, it's one of the David Fincher video essays where they talk mm-hmm. about the fact that every once in a while you have to come back to people sitting and talking, you know, mm-hmm. as a filmmaker, it's a thing that happens a lot. And this is one of those scenes that because of these two actors, it is elevated uh, so far beyond that it's just it it crackles it sizzles with <laughs> <laughs> i hate to get hyperbolic but uh it really is great and i adore if him oh no all right well it's my turn now. you know what see now now i don't think we can really tear apart the video essay guy because we've committed a crime ourselves <laughs> but the, we have sinned <laughs> There, there's a there's a person named the Nostalgia Critic on YouTube, and he did a video essay talking about looking for reasons to make fun of Alien Resurrection. And this is he's not the only person who does this. There's a, there's a lot of people like Cinema Sins and like Honest Trailers. I guess I don't watch those, but they are like uh, just people who go about trying to second guess movies or trying to like mock movies, trying to get followers because other people watch it and think that because they're laughing at the jokes. They're smarter than the movie too, 
when really no one's smarter than like they're just they're being disingenuous in their humor. They're so okay. I want to make my point very clearly. Uh, people like the nostalgia critic who who sit down and they they watch they they find a movie that is just already typically one that's already critically reviled a little bit or like mm-hmm. that people don't the consensus consensus is that it's not very good in the first place and then they sit down and they just mock it for any you know however long and they just they they make all these points that are that are uh, based on either incomplete or faulty information about the scene at hand mm-hmm. they're like well you know why didn't they do this? Why didn't they do this? Like, why, you know, why is this person doing this? And occasionally they will even go so far as to just outright make fun of an actor's performance, which is where we get back to Brad Dourif. He makes this whole running gag about how Brad Dourif is like, what did they even do? Like, is he just this weird guy in real life? Like, I wouldn't let him anywhere near children. Or he says things like that. And I'm like, right. I'm like, you, you're not, not only like, it's bad enough that you're not, that you're just doing this to, to, to you're making fun of this movie so that you, you feel on the one hand, you feel superior. On the other hand, you get more followers because you get clicks. You know, people like to laugh at that for whatever reason. If people people do kind of glom onto that. Usually, younger people who don't know any better. Usually, uh-huh. children. <laughs> Usually, I mean, if I was a teenager, I would probably be watching things like that and thinking I was smarter than everybody else. When in reality, I was not. And so, I think it's a stuff like that is a poison. <laughs> it's like a. It's, in a, it's a, the enemy of honest, genuine film criticism and debate. I think it's the enemy of intellectualism. And I think people like him, certainly talk about that video because it's, to be fair, it's the only one I've seen. But people like him and people like Cinema Sins, which on the other hand, I'm very familiar with, unfortunately, they're not trying to illuminate anything. They're trying to sell you themselves. They're snake oil salesmen. They're con artists who want to get clicks. They want their videos to be watched, so they get money from ads, and that's all that is. And it's a shame, but event like we're gonna have to start talking about it, so we can start moving past it, so people stop doing it. Because the, the I think there's a there's a, a willingness to accept that the capitalist system is broken on a certain level, and just kind of be like, well, it's always gonna be like this. It's like not if we fight for a higher standard of what people are willing to pay for. And what people are willing to give money to and give their time to. And so I feel like that's why it's important. And that's what we're trying to do with this podcast is just make it so that people, so that, so that, uh, not that we're the most brilliant people in the world, but we're coming at it. We're coming from a receptive place when we approach any film. I think that's important. And I think it's important in most things, not just talking about film, but that's my rant. <laughs> it's, it got, it got pretty unwieldy there. Uh, you're, you're what you can talk now. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, okay. I just want everyone to know, first off, that rant right there is one of the reasons that I love Andrew Ford. He's absolutely right. I mean, I don't want to, you know, single out any other particular people or beat anybody up, but I do think that snarkiness and dismissiveness is the opposite of empathy and sincerity. And one of those paths makes the world a better place. The other one, you can argue that it may or may not do anything, but I think the path of empathy always wins, always in my book. And we'll put a couple things in, in show notes here uh, regarding this. I don't know if I necessarily want to link to the, the videos that we don't like so much, mm-hmm. but if you want kind of a, a funny version, 
I would check out the Key and Peel sketch, Awkward Conversation, which is basically a three-minute encapsulation of our argument here. <laughs> um, you know, it's said in a, told in a very funny sketch comedy manner. Or I would point to the David Foster Wallace commencement address called called This Is Water? Yeah, This Is Water. Where he kind of touches on the same topic, at least from my viewpoint of it, of empathy and Mm -hmm. trying to connect with the people around you and how even if you're wrong and you're the fool, the world is a better place and your world is a better place because of your viewpoint, which I think being dismissive and snotty is the opposite of, of the viewpoint that I would like to have. And I understand everyone has different levels. I think Andrew and I both really like Mystery Science Theater 3000 and things like mm-hmm. the Flop House. But even within uh, so-called bad movie podcasts, you know, I have different levels of things that I will tolerate because some of them seem too mean-spirited for me or, or too dismissive and uh, unwilling to educate themselves. And, you know, I think that much like a bad carpenter who blames his tools, I think mm-hmm. if you want to learn from film and you watch pretty much any movie and you cannot find anything in it to learn from, then you're the fault. That's, you know, good, bad, or indifferent. You should be able to, to glean information and strengthen or destroy your own preconceived notions uh, about something by watching films. And I do think that they are empathy machines. So I should get a ding, ding, ding for the. <laughs> we'll, we'll add that in later. <laughs> yeah, I feel pretty. I feel pretty good about that. I think we get to all the ding, ding, dings for that. <laughs> yes. So I would like to say though that I think, for me personally, this serves as as a nice bridge to my advanced studies film, mm-hmm. which I watched Serenity, because I view a lot of what happened in Alien Resurrection as a prototype for Firefly slash Serenity, uh, Joss Whedon's series about space pirates that got one season and a movie. (laughs) One (laughs) short abbreviated season and a movie. Mm -hmm. I mean, you could kind of map the the characters of the Betty onto the characters on Serenity, which the, the latter translation works a lot better. I mean... Michael Wincott, notwithstanding, I think that the the, the crew of our, our beloved uh, Firefly class spaceship is pretty much, to my mind, note perfect. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you don't see any or nearly as many of those uh, kind of lost in translation moments as you do in Resurrection. I would maybe swap out at a Baldwin with Ron Perlman, just because that would be fun. Yes. <laughs> Although Adam Baldwin totally also kind of gets at the the snottiness of that character, mm-hmm. which is uh, he does have a lot of fun with it. One of my big uh, takeaways, though, from rewatching Serenity was once again how sincere, how uh, Joss Whedon uses the, these tropes and kind of the formulaic nature of stories to get at something that is more more touching and more human. And it's this, you know, it's the thing that I strongly believe in, in, in movies is the ability of storytelling to serve as a metaphor, to reach you on some other level. Mm -hmm. So in resurrection, it, it feels like there's not really anything underneath the surface because the style of the movie is not in service to 
uh, everything that's happening. Mm-hmm. Now, Serenity has a lot of the same style. There's a lot of the camera switching around and circling around characters. There's whip pans. There's high and low angle extreme shots and some super like wide angle and stuff. Mm-hmm. But it's just, you can tell that it, it seems like it comes from one mind from beginning to end. And so that the thoughts are a lot more complete. Resurrection, I smile a few times. I enjoy <laughs> the movie. What did Eli call it the other day? Bright flashing lights or something like that. It's 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 good to have on the room when you're alone. <laughs> Serenity, I watched part of it on a plane earlier on my iPad, and partway through, the gentleman next to me tapped me on the shoulder and said, what are you watching? Mm-hmm. This looks insane. There's all kinds of things going on. <laughs> it, is it available to watch on like Netflix? <laughs> and, you know, uh, that's... I have to think that that's probably the mark of something. Something is happening, correct? But even in that environment, when the end of the movie comes, I was getting choked up. Granted, mm-hmm. I'm an incredibly, overly, problematically empathetic person. <laughs> but I didn't have those character connections. That To me, that's a sign when a movie doesn't completely work for me, at least on an emotional level. And there are as many different ways to appreciate movies as there are people. But Resurrection doesn't work for me at that level serenity i totally love there's other flaws with it but it really seems like he got to redo this these things that he was batting around you know like half a decade earlier mm-hmm. half a decade to a decade earlier i guess um depending if you're watching the the show or the the film oh definitely i remember seeing serenity in theaters before i'd ever seen the show uh-huh. which is an interesting experience but i loved it even then i mean it's got an energy to it. And I'm remembering um, one thing that I, I definitely wanted to mention is uh, I feel like a thing that he does, and I, I'm trying to think back if, if, if I could think of an example of the, like an opposite example from maybe an early episode of Buffy or something. Mm-hmm. But to me, I feel like the, one of the key hallmarks of Joss Whedon stuff is he never condemns his characters for their beliefs. Right. So like even the villain who's played by Chiwetel Ejiofor 4 in Serenity, which is like pre super fame i mean i guess he's not super famous but right. he, this is before he like blew up and was you know in an oscar winning best picture yeah. he, his character like in any other like he's a very very good like bad guy but he's like also he's a he's a foil in a way for nathan fillion's mal the main character mm-hmm. he has his convictions and he's not wrong yes. to have those you know like he's not pure evil now that i'm not speaking for the uh was it the reavers i guess they're probably pretty evil but, you know, it's just their, it's just their biology. They, they're just, they're wired. They like to eat well, people. And that's, it's funny because that becomes the MacGuffin of the movie mm-hmm. is actually, I mean, like everyone should go watch it. Yeah. But this whole question of doing what is right mm-hmm. is, it's kind of, I think one of the core concepts of the movie the idea that kind of this oppressive government, even though they seem super friendly, are controlling you in a variety of ways they're trying to get everyone to behave Mm -hmm. once again our space pirates they aim to misbehave (laughs) you know that it takes that han solo i guess rebel without a cause from the beginning of the film or from the beginning of the 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 star wars films and turns him into the rebel with a cause Mm -hmm. even if he doesn't always overly state it and i feel like that's a an incredibly weird track to take i mean like i said joss whedon has made a career out of giving kind of this slightly deeper inner life um, into these archetypes that we've already known. 
Mm-hmm. You know, so much so that the space pirates, they're, they're regular pirates, but it's in space. Uh, <laughs> and you could almost make a family tree of Han Solo as he'd be the father of mm-hmm. this modern iteration. I could, you could go back for, you know, uh, more adventurous and daring do uh, swashbucklers, I guess. But really in Malcolm Reynolds, uh, as Nathan Fillion is Malcolm Reynolds, you get this guy who he's quippy and he has feelings and he he cares about his crew at the expense of everything else, his people, his mm-hmm. his surrogate family. He's, I guess, the the middle child or maybe the second generation. And now you have Guardians of the Galaxy, mm-hmm. which you have kind of the ultimate, at least to date, I think, encapsulation of, of this dynamic. You know, in Chris Pratt as Star-Lord, you have a character who has no second thoughts, really, <laughs> about protecting the people he loves. Mm-hmm. It's a fantastic kind of part of his character and of the movies, that dramatic arc in Star Wars A New Hope of Han Solo returning to the battle. It's mm-hmm. this big moment how you know that he grew from this like totally selfish person uh, into something greater. And then they kind of reset that at the beginning of the next movie. But at any rate, Star-Lord is the ultimate version of that. He's a pirate. You know, they steal things. They He's a, he's a ravager at first. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, but even then, he was brought up to thieve. Mm-hmm. Makes thieving easier, I think, something. I remember yeah. the, the line that... Um, oh, yeah, I remember that. It's like, yeah. Get in all those little little tiny places where we can't fit. Yeah. (laughs) So he was brought up in that kind of culture, but he's still a good person at heart, Mm -hmm. almost irrepressibly so. And that's what I see as coming from kind of the Joss Whedon school. That no matter how cool and tough the exterior is, uh, when your your character is a good person, they're good through and through. Part of what I love so much about Serenity is even our bad guy was a good person mm-hmm. yeah he wouldn't kick a puppy it's a nice thing in a movie for the villain to have their own agency and thought processes and we get to see those kind of play out and explored throughout the movie and it's an adventure movie with space battles and also uh they think and they feel things so <laughs> i think uh, yeah go and watch, <laughs> watch serenity for probably a more fun, slightly better version of of resurrection with with one hundred percent fewer xenomorphs, but you can't win them all. But you have reavers, and that's they, true. They eat people. That's true. Uh, they're they're barely seen. You've got River Tam mm-hmm. just destroying people left and right, like mm-hmm. the alien Ripley. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I was trying to figure out if she was going to come, like, if, if we're going with the crew comparison, if she's yeah. more like Call, because she's like kind of, you know, she's enhanced in a lab, kind of like a robot. I don't know. Yes. But she's definitely, I, th- I think Ripley's a better comparison. And maybe her brother would be Call, because her brother's kind of like hum- the humorless gold, <laughs> in yeah. a way. A lot of the time. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. That part is a little. <laughs> problematic if you're trying to track one for one yeah well I, I guess michael wincott had his love interest in actress who has such little screen time that i don't remember her name right but you remember she was there i do remember she was there speaking about the villains like not being all bad guys and having their own reasoning behind them i think it's something that uh he learned on buffy 
and you can see an evolution over the course of that show because I feel like the master in the season, the first season, who's the bad guy, is the master, and he's just kind of a bad guy. Like he doesn't have a whole lot of else going for. Like he has a plan, but it's sort of like a, a darkly comic version of like a bad guy. When he's ineffectual, it's not. Be, you know, it's like he's occasionally ineffectual, and it's just like, oh well, I'll, you know, move on and do it again. It's a little, a little sillier than the, the show gets later. But then in the second season. Spoilers for Buffy, but you have Angel turn into a bad guy who's a character that you've grown to like love and you really like Wait, adore whoa, this relationship. Whoa. And it's, it's, the, he kind of, you know, over the course of the show, even when there's a big bad in a certain season, like, like the, the principal in uh, season three or Glory in season five, uh, you get like their complete psychology, you get their understanding behind what they do. It, it's, it's something that definitely you can trace all the way through to Loki. Which I know he didn't start Loki and Thor, but Loki is the sort of main villain in the Avengers. I wouldn't really count the Chitari or the space whatever things as the main bad guy, but you understand Loki. Like you understand his psychology. Like he just he's the always overlooked brother. You know, he he just wants to do right by his dad and get some respect. And it's developed into pathology, and it, you kind of you empathize with him. There's a reason he's always said it as like the only Marvel villain who's worth a damn it's because you. Understand him, and he has a complete well, okay. uh, identity. If you want to go down the 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 Whedon rabbit hole, okay, as far as that goes, Cabin in the Woods, Ooh. you have the the actual things which are harming our characters and you know possibly destroying the planet are unknowable, mm-hmm. but the people pulling the the levers behind that extremely knowable, extremely relatable. And they have their reasons for mm-hmm. what they're doing. There are no bad guys in the film. There are people that are pulling these strings mm-hmm. and it, it hurts our characters, but also they're trying to save the world. Right. They literally have the best reason to do their job. Like, it, yes, it's, it's kind of, you watch the first part of the movie and you're not sure what's happened. So I actually considered that for my pick too. But then I was like, I don't want to be because I feel like I seem like the kind of person who would just talk about Cabin in the Woods for for hours, and I can, <laughs> and maybe we will at some point. Yeah, but I don't. I feel like it's its own. But Sigourney Weaver is in it briefly, which That's is its true. own kind of you know nice little callback to this. But yeah, I mean, yeah, Cabin in the Woods, of course. That's a a great example because not only that, not only are those guys the guys who are you know tormenting the main characters of the film, the like. They have a really good reason to do it. Not only that, but they also the main characters of the film are kind of like they're you like them, but then they kind of end up making a bad decision. Yes, they kind of do the wrong thing all the way through, and it's yep. kind of the ultimate. It, it, it's great. Enough about Cabin in the Woods. That's I, I like the fact <laughs> that I I think we had some of the best prep for this mm-hmm. episode, and we're just uh, crazy all over the place. Yeah, like yeah. We've got way more bullet points than the previous <laughs> ones and questions written out and stuff and so many tangents, but I, they're good. I mean, I think, any, it, any, I think any, it, it speaks to the film we're talking about a little bit. Maybe yes. I, I would, th- I think that it is a film that if you catch it on a Sunday afternoon, I think you described it like a, a mad scientist in space movie. Mm-hmm. If this was the, the rain delay movie while I was waiting for the Cubs game. Okay. I, I would be okay with it. That's, <laughs> That's the kind of movie it is. The real question is, would it be distinguishable enough from the episodes of Andromeda and Earth 2 they ran during the actual rain delay? 
<laughs> See, I, I remember when I was growing up that it would be old black and white, probably whatever like public domain or whatever they had the rights to at the time okay. films. Well, like yeah, that was you know, I guess mid eighties probably. So yeah, no, I, I definitely I don't mean to slight Alien Resurrection, but it's a certain level. Like it's not on the level of Alien or Aliens to me in terms of an achievement that's like I would like I wouldn't say like Alien Resurrections for everybody. If you love movies and you never get a chance to watch this in your entire life, you'll you'll be okay. You can even love sci-fi movies and write a write a, a research paper on movies featuring space pirates and not watch this one and you'd be okay. But it's yes. really fun if you do want to watch it and you're open to it. Exactly the kind of movie. So, I'm going to drop another link or actually probably Andrew will uh, in the show notes. And this is to uh, something that I think gets at a lot of what we've been talking about here today, which would be an article from a film crit Hulk. Okay. Do you you Mm -hmm. know where I'm, you know where I'm going with this? I think so. Please continue. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Okay. So film crit Hulk is, um, uh, my f- favorite film reviewing superhero <laughs> that I know of. <laughs> and one of the first things that uh, first ways that I became uh, acquainted with his writing and his shtick was an article that he published in 2011 called never hate a movie. Yep. Okay. That's where I thought you were going. I just want to make yep. sure. <laughs> yeah. This, this article now lives on the birth movies, death uh, website. Mm hmm. And the subhead is, uh, so it's never hate a movie or how Quentin Tarantino got Hulk to stop worrying and love the bombs. Not a super long read, mm-hmm. but pretty much everything film crit Hulk writes. Uh, I think it is very worth your time. And I think if you were at all interested in the learning about films and trying to regulate that line within yourself between thinking that a movie is total crap and should be set on fire and Mm -hmm. that maybe there's something you should learn. It's a great article to read personally within myself. I always try to go to the movie. Mm -hmm. I don't expect the movie to come to me. A lot of times personally, my tastes will be out of line with things that are super popular. Mm -hmm. And I always wonder what it is that other people see in it. I don't try to dog it. Uh, I wonder you know, where our tastes diverge and what is it that makes this, this good or bad. And, you know, it's, I have the flip side of it when I tell people that they should watch Richard Kelly movies (laughs) and they really don't want to, (laughs) Uh, or M night Shyamalan. There you go. There's another one who is, you know, he's back on the upswing, but Mm -hmm. uh, I think was overly maligned. And, uh, I'd go to bat for, uh, I don't know. 80% 80% of the time, 70% of the time, somewhere in there. <laughs> well, I feel like there's, there's always filmmakers too that make things that are just not going to hit the mainstream just right. You know, yes. unless like David Lynch is a guy that I thought of. Obviously, he's a huge influence on Richard Kelly, but he's someone like if, when I talk to people about the new, the new Twin Peaks season, mm. first of all, I have a hard time out here finding people who've actually watched it. If you live in Sacramento, California and have watched Twin Peaks, talk, talk to me. <laughs> I don't know too many people that watch the original show or are watching the new one, but I think that the tone of that is something that people don't want to meet it there necessarily, which I think is interesting. He operates at a certain kind of remove the same way that 
Richard Kelly would later do as, you know, as he was influenced by David Lynch. Our empathetic thread that's running through this. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I think maybe if this film serves as a uh, insight into that, it's valuable in and of itself. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to quote a little bit from this article, this Quentin Tarantino part here, okay. where Quentin Tarantino and uh, film crit Hulk were talking at some event. Mm-hmm. Hulk said that he hated some particular movie they were discussing. And Tarantino says, never hate a movie. Never under any circumstances hate a movie. It won't help you, and it's a waste of time. There's plenty of reasons not to like a movie, but if you hate them, meaning if you let it bother you, then they'll do nothing but bother you, and who wants to be bothered? There's so many better things to do with movies. Bad things can be so much more interesting than just bad. Even the bombs, especially the bombs, man. And I mean, if you want to do this for a fucking living and you're absolutely serious, then never hate a movie. You can learn so much about the craft from bad movies. That's absolutely instructive. Yes, 100%. Like, that's, it's interesting, too. I, I, I'm tempted to say, hey, that's pretty rich coming from Tarantino. I know, I know. <laughs> I love Tarantino, but he, he's called, he's like rail against John Ford, calling him a fucking racist and stuff. Yes. And I mean, he might be right, but I, I don't, I don't think, I don't think that's true about John Ford. I think he I think John Ford took a lot of steps to amend his early beliefs or his early portrayals of native Americans and African Americans later in his, in his career with, with films like, uh, which I haven't seen it, but Sergeant Rutledge is always held up as one. Cheyenne Autumn is another, uh, which both of those are movies I need to see. But even if you look at the sunshine's bright, which does have step and fetch it in it, which is a little hard to to deal with today, but (laughs) it's such a good, it's it is a very empathetic movie, and much more so than a lot of the films that his contemporaries were making in that regard. The fact that he even had Step and Fetch it in it, even though Step and Fetch it now is like kind of like I said, hard to hard to take. Like he's basically skins right. in mud flap from Transformers Two. It's a little rough, but the fact that he's even in it is a testament to I think John Ford's like ultimate receptiveness to empathetic view of the world. So. so- Maybe yeah. our, our our next marathon could be I don't know. Do, do you have the uh, Fox at, or Ford at Fox uh, box set? Uh, I thought you were going to say let's watch Delicatessen and the Crow, but uh, sure, yeah, let's get a joke. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm always down for John Ford. I love I love John Ford. My my brother actually has the Ford at Fox set, but I I just kind of pick them up as they come. <laughs> All right, so uh, I think that's a perfect segue into <laughs> what's your advanced studies what's your takeaway from this one well naturally uh since we've been discussing john ford and and quentin tarantino and you know uh race on film and the history of it i'm going to talk about the resident evil movies <laughs> <laughs> that's perfect i see how it all comes together now so i was skeptical but i had a little bit of time on my hands and uh this was at the beginning of the year in january i was still a little upset about politics why uh, I, I can't imagine why. <laughs> I just I, I noticed it, it like I went back and read like the, the, the little reviews that I wrote for each Resident Evil movie. I watched all the Resident Evil movies in advance of the new one coming out. And I went back and read my reviews earlier today to kind of refresh my memory because I, I knew I wanted to talk about them uh, for this. And <laughs> every like paragraph has to have a little I don't even you know, I, I'm like angry that they exist because I, I'm just assuming like oh like it's all like these this derpy like we like uh, Slipknot and we drink Code Red Mountain Dew and play Warcraft and we love the Resident Evil movies. 
Hey, never hit it. Never hit a video game. I, I don't know about that. I, I'm pretty resentful of the whole. I, I'm I'm terrible at video games because I don't I don't. They're they're a time commitment. I'll say that. If you want to get good at it, you got to invest the time. But no, so I, I went back and watched him, and uh, I had seen I think maybe the third one before. I know I saw the third one in theaters when it came out. I was trying to fit in with the cool kids at college. Um, I went, I, so I went and watched them and I, I'd heard, you know, there's always been rumblings of like, it's called vulgar auteurism and stuff about specifically Paul W.S. Anderson, who, uh, right. will, and when we conclude the alien series, we will talk about in greater detail, but he, he you know, he made, he made event horizon. He made alien versus predator. He made, and he made the res, the first, fourth, fifth and sixth resident evil movies. I, I, you know, I knew a little bit about him, so I decided to, I decided to sit down and watch them all. And the first one is, is his, and James Cameron is supposedly a, a, a fan. He, he, I believe, called it a guilty pleasure in an interview once, and then he said mm-hmm. he felt bad calling it a guilty pleasure because he just really liked it. So I think that's, it sort of goes back to the never-hated movie thing, which if anyone adheres to that and, and, and implements it successfully, and implements that philosophy successfully, it's probably someone like James Cameron. Uh, but we've already talked enough about him. It's not the first Resident Evil that I want to talk about, or the second or the third, because um, the first three are each directed by different people. Paul W.S. Anderson did the first. The second one was uh, Alexander Witt, longtime second unit director. I believe he's back to doing that. He does, does it for like the Bourne movies, a lot of big okay. action movies where he, he does second unit work for. And this is a rare actual like first unit directorial effort. And then the third one is directed by Russell Mulcahy, probably oh. most famous for Highlander. And Razorback, and that was part of why I, I actually let myself get roped into seeing it in theaters. And it is pretty good. It's probably the strongest of the first three, but it's when you get to four, five, and six. And I know all of everyone listening to this is like, "When I'm not doing that ever, I'll never do that." You can honestly skip straight to them if you really want to. But four, five, and six tell kind of a sprawling, weird story that has like no regard for conventional narrative. It's a storyline that's very heavily clone-based. Mila Jovovich's Alice is basically a clone, like most of the time. I couldn't even tell you how. Like, there's like supposedly an original Alice, but after a certain point, I don't even think she stays original. And then there's a reveal at the end of part six. That maybe they're the original that you thought was the original isn't the original. There's all this, there's all these labyrinth and plot threads going on. But I think what's interesting is looking at that series and comparing it to Alien Resurrection is looking at. I mean, starting especially since it started, I'm, I want to. I'm saying you should start with the fourth film in that series, much like we're talking about the fourth film in the Alien series, and you okay. see a film that's discuss. It's sort of commenting on its own existence. The fact that you have a, a series of films that are literally only exist because they make money. I don't think there's a ton of creative. I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I think it's mostly they're capitalizing on intellectual property because they're the most successful slash only successful video game adaptations there are. And basically, you have a movie commenting on the fact that they keep making clones of the main character because she's so powerful. And the whole series is we keep making movies because they keep making money. There's a meta commentary to it that I think if you if you if you give it a little bit of credit, it'll reward you tenfold. Because it just, it goes there. It really does. And by the time you get to, so it's Resident Evil Afterlife is the fourth one. I would compare it to like a B movie on steroids. Like it's kind of like, if you ever like go back and watch a B movie from the 70s, like some, some terrible zombie apocalypse movie that, that just like feels like it takes, it's like 90 minutes, but it feels like it lasts two hours. It's like a knockoff. And like all the stuff that you see on the poster, none of it's actually on screen. Well, this is like that if they actually put the stuff on screen. 
and it's kind of revelatory in that way. There's no fat. There, there's not really any fat. It's kind of just set piece, set piece, set piece. And there's no the fact that it's a sequel. They just sort of like throw you into it. They don't really take the time that they, they like briefly introduce new characters. They don't get. They're all archetypes. So you don't need a ton of introduction, and you you kind of just move. You keep move, like propulsively moving through it. And then by the time you get to Resident Evil Retribution, which is the fifth one, it's literally like the setup is almost, it's a lot like Synecdoche, New York meets Aliens, which is, sounds crazy, but it's literally like. It it does, but in a really fantastic kind of way. Right. It's like she, she's literally waking up and finding her way through scenarios from the earlier movies, like uh, the main clone, the clone from the end of Afterlife. And the opening credit sequence of Retribution is actually, it is, so Afterlife ends on a cliffhanger action sequence, and then Retribution starts off with the end of that action sequence, and then it reverses through the entire action sequence. So you get back to the ending of Afterlife, and then the movie starts. It's a total, like, trip. It's so much fun. You can see, like, it feels like he's got money, like, Paul W.S. Anderson has money, and he's just like, I'm gonna try different things and see what happens. It's very experimental. I feel like more people, like critically, should have should be addressing this. I don't feel like anyone ever talks about it. And then by the time you get to mm-hmm. the final chapter, the only caveat with the final chapter is the action isn't as cleanly shot as it is in the in the two preceding films. I'm not sure. I think they, I think he used a different cinematographer, but I don't. I wish it. That's the only thing I don't like about the last one. Because the last one actually serves as like a surprisingly emotionally satisfying payoff, and it's a. It's just. It's really interesting. Mila Jovovich's Alice is one of the one of the biggest action heroines we have this side of Ripley. She's definitely influenced by Ripley. Uh-huh. In, the, in the earliest films, like she doesn't have the depth of character that you would you would get if you walk in any alien movie with Ripley, even Resurrection, where she's a clone. You still have this you know knowledge in your head about who she is, and she has some memories. Right. And and you're comparing and contrasting her behavior with the other one. And that like when you get to the second like. The, the four, five, and six in this Resident Evil franchise—it's just really—they're really—they're—they grow this character that seems like it sort of emerges out of nothing. Maybe it's Stockholm syndrome. I don't know. Maybe it's because I watched all of them. It's entirely possible. It wouldn't be the first time that I've just get—you know—it's why TV works. It's because you just—if you just keep watching it, you're going to start liking it. I don't know if I'm crazy or not, but I—I I think Resident Evil, Afterlife, Retribution, and the final chapter are all very very interesting and i would highly recommend them and i i would say that i think they're a little stronger overall than alien resurrection but they're cheating because they're three movies and not one that's my advanced studies pick <laughs> uh, i like it that's a a rabbit hole that i haven't gone down past the believe the first two films that mm-hmm. uh, now i want to <laughs> because of your, your description of kind of how uh nuts they are. I do have to say that when you first started talking about uh, B movies, I thought you meant the B movie. Well, I mean, that, that, that's that's the problem. Yeah, with everyone's had since about two thousand six, whenever that came yes. out. <laughs> I, I just think that most movie conversations are about uh, the B movie. That's, yeah, that might just be me though. Are you talking about you talking about the swarm? Or are you talking about you're talking about the swarm with the Oscar winning Oscar nominated costume design? Is that what you're talking about? The B movie? No. With Michael Caine? Nope. I wish that I were. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, I wish that I were talking about the the remake of Wicker Man as well. That could also be called the B movie. It's true. How to get burned? I mean, 
I just want to throw it out there. That was freshman year of college. I saw that, a Resident Evil Extinction, and I saw Saw 3 in theaters to hang out with cool people. And you know what? It was, mm-hmm. it was fun. I, don't, I regret nothing other than watching the, him break his ankle and walk around on it in Saw 3. I didn't like that. But other than that, that that's that is viscerally upsetting. <laughs> no, I really like uh, I like the the concept that this is it's you're talking about a franchise that went elsewhere and became stronger for it as mm-hmm. opposed to a a well-loved franchise that didn't so much, you know, that or, uh, or that tried to and, and and didn't quite get there. I feel like Right. And of course, we'll talk about the places it goes when Ridley Scott comes back and all that, all that stuff eventually. Oh, the places it'll go. <laughs> Let's do that. Let's do a little bit of schedule maintenance and housekeeping stuff. So when are we planning on returning to the alien verse? So basically, we're going to structure this podcast in like seasons and we'll have like a finite amount of episodes and then we'll kind of take a break and then we'll come back and do it again and incorporate feedback and try different things and see, you know, see what works, see, see what doesn't work. This is definitely going to be a work in progress as we're learning it. But uh, basically right now we're going to take a break after the alien movies because we just want to try something different from the alien movies. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the season is going to continue. That's true. Continue with us. Uh, what's going to be our, our next topic. So our next topic is going to be blind spot movies. Yes. So, and I don't want to steal the term blind spotting from uh, film spotting. Oh no, I didn't know that was a, a oops. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's totally one of theirs. Uh, and it works cause they have film spotting, drain spotting, blind spotting. It works. Uh, so we need some kind of uh shtick. We could call it the empathy unsheen. <sighs> there you go. Yep. <laughs> uh, that's a war crime. That is big old sigh. So <laughs> the goal uh, of these um, episodes will be for us to fill in uh, gaps in our knowledge base, basically. So our next episode is going to be a sports movie double feature. Uh, I, I would call seen. it a, a double header because it's a, uh, oh, oh, okay. All right. It's, it's uh sports pickle sports. Okay. All right. But we're going to watch two that I haven't seen. And I think, have you seen both of them? I have seen both of them okay. multiple times. And they are the original bad news bears, 1976, Michael Ritchie joint. Yes. And Slapshot, directed by George Roy Hill from 1977, which, yeah, somehow I haven't seen either of them. What am I in for? You are in for some good old-fashioned sportsing. Yeah. A little more casual racism and sexism than you're probably used to. Uh, is it going to be like a throwback to a time when men were men? It is. Um, and occasionally women were men as well. Okay. All right. Yes. That's right. I think, it, yeah, uh, I know what you're talking about. Yep, and some good Paul Newman. Love Paul Newman. A, a very, a very roguish and charming Paul Newman. Uh, Han Solo esque, maybe. Hmm. Hmm. I don't know. Or is or is Han Solo Paul Newman esque? That's a good question. Yeah, I don't know. The plot thickens. Well, we'll the get we'll get to thickens. the bottom of this in our next episode. But uh, I guess I think we're pretty much wrapped up. Unless you want me to talk more about the Resident Evil movies, which I can. No, I, I did think maybe um, <laughs> let's go, uh, since we have a little bit of, of the schedule laid out, Yeah, let's, you know, I guess tease kind of our, our special episodes coming up at the beginning of July, the, the 4th of July celebration. It's a time I can't for, think of a, a good film for that. Uh, it's a time for families to get together and go to the beach. Mm-hmm. I, oh, what would that be about? 
Maybe like a Pirates of the Caribbean movie or something. Oh yeah, we could we could do pirates because they have a lot of beaches. Oh, we could or we could do beaches. We could do beaches because it's a it's about I've never seen beaches, but I know it's about like friendship. I feel like in every other conversation we ever have, the the ratio of movies that you have seen is is exactly flipped from this conversation. Yes. It is the inverse. This is like the outlier. Yeah, because right now we're talking about beaches, motherfucker. Okay. <laughs> it's it's a fantastic film. Okay, all right. I was gonna I was gonna tell you how that you are the wind beneath my wings, but you wouldn't get it. And I believe right. what you should say is I haven't seen beaches yet. Motherfucker. Motherfucker, yes. <laughs> okay. Uh, no. Fourth of July, what are we gonna watch? We're gonna watch Jaws. Watch Jaws, of course. Not only are we going to watch it and we're going to talk about it, we're also going to take a journey. Yes, I I believe we're probably gonna do a a two parter about Yes about jaws and movie going experiences and the, and the communal aspects of film going because we're going to go to a special jaws event at the beginning of the month that's right we're going down to austin texas which you have been to austin before i have not yep love austin i'm uh, very much uh, looking forward to if uh if you guys hear this before we go you probably will email us with good places to go because i'm open to suggestions but i feel like there's going to be a lot to do and not enough time to do it but we're going to go watch Jaws on an inner tube at a water park. Uh, like crazy people. Two inner tubes. Two, two inner That's right. Yeah, we're we're each not going to be like sharing an inner tube. That's true. It's, and it's Jaws, so you'll pay for the whole inner tube, but you'll only use the edge. <laughs> I, I shouldn't have laughed that hard at it, but I wasn't expecting that. <laughs> I wasn't expecting that. But yes, uh, so that's our next, so our lineup going forward is double feature of films that I haven't seen that Josh can spend the entire episode making fun of me for never having seen. Mm-hmm. And then Jaws. And then Jaws, Jaws uh, more about Jaws. More stuff. Yeah. I, we can I maybe think... talk about the sequels too when we, if we get there because I can always talk about which one is, is my favorite. I mean, Jaws 2 is the best, but I mean, of the sequels, but I could definitely talk about all of them. Michael Caine bought a house. That's uh that's true. We could talk about the house he bought. Well, that's what we should do. We should look up the house he bought. Yes. Talk about that instead of Jaws Revenge. Yeah, I'm hoping for the, the continuation. This will actually be the second time you and I have seen Jaws at a, a public screening together, I believe. That's right. Yep. That's true. Yeah, they showed it at the Bell Court in Nashville the year that we worked on a movie together. Yes. And I would, I think that we can get a little bit into maybe like, you know, repertory screenings and uh, stunts that get you out to these shows mm-hmm. uh, and kind of unique environments to, to watch movies in and maybe oh, some of our, our best theater going experiences. You know, it's yeah, I have good ones. The bad ones stand out more, which is not a good thing Oof. that I'm realizing now. Oofa doofa. I had a really bad Okay, it was a great experience because it was Lawrence of Arabian theaters, but we talked about that. I told you about oh, that. Yes, I had yes. a really bad. Yeah, there was a guy there who was. We can talk about that. <laughs> yeah, and he's probably in jail now. Uh, let's put it that way. <laughs> well, I, I believe ruining anybody else's screening of Lawrence of Arabia is a crime. It's admissible in court as evidence of a flawed personality that probably shouldn't be out roaming the streets. Hey, that's a cinema sin. Ugh. There's a cinema sin for you. Yes. Actual sin in a cinema, and hopefully, when we're down in Austin, we'll get to go to an Alamo mm-hmm. as well. Because have, have you gotten that experience as of yet? So I went to one in Houston, okay. And then there's one in San Francisco. So I live in Sacramento now, 
everyone anyone wants to stalk me. And there's one in San Francisco, but it's like three hours. It's on the far side of San Francisco for me, I guess. Oh, wow. So okay. I haven't made it there yet. I need to go there because I need to pick up the... They had a commemorative King Kong glasses for the new... The, the King Kong movie that came out this year, uh, Kong yes. Skull Island. And I had the ones from the 70s, Kong. So I was like, I got to get these. And then I bought tickets to go to the movie, and they came with the glasses, and I never went to pick it up. And they said they'd hold it for me, and that was three months ago. So Are they going to hold them indefinitely? I don't know. If they don't, I think I can get my money back. I, I, I would hope so. But I, but I also, I mean, it's... It's kind of, I could just write it. I mean, it's going to a good cause, I guess. I don't know. I mean, I don't want to take money from the draft house because I do Uh, like what they do. I I did purchase through uh, Mondo. I actually have, I believe, two, possibly three shirts with quotes from Jaws on them. And I get questions all the time when I'm wearing them. Mostly it's confused looks and then someone saying quizzically, this was no boat accident? (laughs) I was going to ask you, do you have the Bad Hat Harry one? And, uh, yes, I do. Are you ever mistaken for uh, Brian Singer's personal assistant or someone who works at his company? I know this might be hard to believe, but that's actually, I think in pop culture, uh, a fairly deep cut. Yeah. Yeah. True. Yeah. So well. at any rate, <laughs> that's our, our schedule going forward for the, the next month or so. We're going to catch up with some 70s uh, sports movie classics mm-hmm. or I guess it remains to be seen as to whether we think they're classics or not. And then Jaws. Mm-hmm. And, you know, after that, I think the the world is our oyster pretty much. Yeah, we're open to uh, feedback. We've already had uh, some people suggest other episodes for us to do and, and a lot of good a lot of good ideas. Mm-hmm. But uh, I don't want to just throw throw them out there and then we not then we don't do them because then I, I was listening to this podcast and I was a fan. I would be like, hey, they never did that movie. They said they were going to do that sucks. Or why, yeah. why haven't they done this yet? They said they were going to talk about, like they said, they're going to talk about Jaws and they haven't talked about it. But we're just going to give, we're going to give it right to you. You just have Jaws right away. Done. Happen. Yeah, because, you know, just stop us from talking about Jaws. Just <laughs> yeah. try. Well, okay, so we can talk about, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> we we're already, we're, we're approaching the, the end of the Alien Resurrection episode. But thank you again for listening. We have an actu- uh, we actually have an additional credit to throw in. I feel like we can go. Ahead, we should go ahead and throw throw that in before we start talking about our own social media. Okay. Uh, would you do the honors? Yes, editing services are provided by Drew Devore. His wife Jackie does the podcast Sirens of Scream, which you should totally check out. Love the woman over at Sirens of Scream. Uh, Jackie and uh, Melissa and uh, Sierra do great work and have some great conversations. Uh, I was on their anniversary episode for their first anniversary. Mm-hmm. They do. I guess similar to what we do, but probably better because they're women. Well, it's like saying that, uh, well, it's not a saying, but it's a, it's wisdom that's held true. As far as I understand it is there's no great movie. There's no great book about horror films written by a man. Okay. No insightful critique of horror has ever been written by a man. I would like to be the man who writes something good at, you know, about horror and something insightful, but Carol Clover, men, women, and chainsaws is like the benchmark. And I guess there's other examples that I'm not, personally aware of but i've heard that before and i was like oh so yes wonder woman is clean up at the box office women are better at everything than men are also there's three of them so that's hardly fair that's true that's true uh there's only two of us so that's that's not fair at all yes but we would like to to thank drew for coming on board and uh helping us out in these early formative stages uh where we are 
in our, our larval stage and becoming beautiful butterflies. Uh, okay, I'm going to go. I'm going to go ahead and go. <laughs> I'm just well, beautiful butterfly. <laughs> there beautiful we go. Baby. Oh, man. How can you make fun of Brad Dourif? I don't know. He, How can you watch this movie fantastic. and say, like, yeah, that, that, here's, here's what it is. It's, uh, it's fear of actual, actually feeling something other than snark, other than, like, superiority. Yes. Smugness. I concur. Yeah. Actually feeling so actually feeling uncomfortable for half a second. There's no like self searching, like, why do I feel uncomfortable? It's like this person's making me feel uncomfortable. They're weird. No, you're just wrong, bro. Anyway, check us out on social media. You can follow me <laughs> at A488 on Twitter. And please don't hesitate to email us at empathy machine podcast at gmail.com with thoughts, responses, comments, suggestions, and or desperate pleas for us to stop. And Josh, you're also on Twitter. Yes, you can follow me on Twitter. I am at Spartacus. Uh, make sure to rate and review the Empathy Machine podcast on iTunes. You can check out links to my film work at www.the79hawks.com. You'll see music videos, probably some short films. I think trailers and things are up there. You know, kind of my bona fides. You could also, I guess, check uh, Andrew and I out on IMDb. We've got some credits. We exist as people in the world. I actually exist as three different people on IMDb because they wouldn't listen to me when I emailed them and told them I, they were all me. So oh, wow! I think I'm still credited you with something. Pro, you don't you don't have that pro account where you can make the changes and stuff. I did, but I never made the changes, and now I don't have it anymore. No, I'm credited with a movie called Mobius that I have no, I had nothing to do with. I accidented it, apparently. Is it something you would be proud to have on your resume? I don't think so because it's not. I don't know what it is. I haven't watched it. I don't know where to find it. It's not like it's like a short film. Huh? I don't even know. Could be anything. It could be anything. And this has been a 79 Hawks production. Thank you all for listening. Stay stay resurrected, y'all. I'm just, that's awful. Good night. Good night. <laughs>